took our time through 1 Samuel. We, uh, we just did a handful of sermons out of 2 Samuel, but we'll conclude this morning with 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. And then I am going to switch over and also read Psalm 51 this morning. So you might want to get a finger in there or you can just listen along. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Hear then the word of God. And the Lord said to Nathan and to David, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him, part of the family. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take, <clears throat> excuse me, unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Verse 13, he says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Flip over to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I'm going to stop there this morning. It will take us where we need to go. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the truth of it, for the realness of it, the grittiness of it, and the great grace that is revealed through it. Oh, Father, would you open our eyes and our ears this morning that we might hear you and we might know you and that we might be saved by your grace. For we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. <clears throat> Last week we spent time looking at... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Should be one up here every day. Last week we were looking at David and Bathsheba and the title of the sermon last week and the whole gist of where we went was the idea that, that this could be you, that this could be me, that, that David was a man after God's own heart. David had seen great victories of faith. David had walked with God for many years. How did he get to where he got? And yet, and yet we get there. And that's what we talked about is it could be you or me because Christians get there every day. Elders and deacons and pastors and, and, and church members, the church of God, we wrestle and somehow, some way, we find ourselves in that place. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go on our website and listen to last week as we talked about David and Bathsheba and how they got to where they got. But we know that David stumbled into a, a relationship with Bathsheba that was sinful and wrong. Bathsheba ended up pregnant. And David grew complacent, and for a time he stayed there after all that happened. He stayed there, living in a deep spiritual darkness. He went on as if nothing had happened. Well, and as we, if we dive into this, let me just say two quick things about the inclusion of this story, both chapter 11 and chapter 12, and the inclusion of this in the Scripture, because there are two things about it, and one of them is that, for me, it helps me to believe in the genuineness of of the scripture and of the people that are written about here, the historicity of it. Because when you read the story of David, you don't just have a, you know, a legendary figure, you know, a high-gloss hero that's been you know, put out there for us, which is often when you're writing fiction, often the way you present, and often historical fiction particularly, or historical things. We can, one of the ways you tell is the, the, the heroic nature. But here we are given insight into David, not only into the heights of his, of his faith and of his victory, but we are given a glimpse into what we often don't in each other's lives, his deepest and darkest sins, his deepest and darkest secrets, his greatest moral and spiritual failures. But this is true if you look back at the life of Noah. There are some great things about Noah. He was a righteous man in his generation. And some of the stories that are told about him, you get a glimpse into his life and and he was a real, real man. He was, a, he was a man of faith, but he was a man who struggled and stumbled and failed at different points. You get the same out of Abraham, and you look at his life, or Moses, who didn't get to enter the promised land because of issues in his life, and David and Peter, who betrays or denies his Lord several times and yet is restored. The Bible, we have confidence that the Bible is about real people. We're presented people of faith, people who struggle who sometimes fail. And so we get this story of David. It's helpful to me then that it shows us not only the magnitude of his moral failure and where he gets to, but in chapter 12 here, and what I read in Psalm 51, which is the psalm that he wrote following this incident, we, get the, we also get the story of his redemption and restoration. We also get the story of what God did in his life to bring him back to himself cause him to stand. It's a story of grace, right? The story of David is a story of grace. God did not forsake him. God did not leave him in his sin. His life was not over. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And so this morning, though, we find David 
hardened by his sin and spiritually numb. He's in something really what I would call a spiritual coma. Because he's spiritually unresponsive. He's not dead, but he's unresponsive. He's, he's spiritually in a really bad place and not responding to God and to his word. You know, he's tried to cover up his sin. and I didn't read this part, but David tries to cover it up. He, he, he engages with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant and try to hide that fact from everyone around. That is because Uriah, her husband, is out doing his job. He's out on the front. He's out fighting the wars of Israel where the king ought to be. And David is at home getting into trouble where he shouldn't be. And so David tries to hide what has happened by inviting Uriah home. And trying to convince him to go spend time with his wife. But Uriah won't go spend time with his wife. He says the rest of the army's out on the field. The rest of the men are sleeping in tents. The rest of the men are putting their lives on the line every day. And he won't leave. He keeps sleeping in, on the doorstep and you know, in different places until the king will send him back. But he won't go home. And so David t- finally does the unthinkable. Which is what happens sometimes when we have a lot of power. And you don't have to really get your hands all that dirty. And he just writes a note. He writes a note that arranges Uriah's death so that when he gets back to the front, that the the, the people to whom he wrote, the commanders on the field, will make sure that Uriah doesn't come home. So all of this takes place. And when Uriah is dead, Bathsheba mourns for a month, and then he says he took Bathsheba home, joined her to his household, and then he goes on as as if nothing had happened. He goes on, just carrying on, carrying on, keeping on, keeping on, like nothing has ever happened. But he, he stays in this place. And there's an amazing capacity for us. It's, it, it, for me, it, it is amazing. In the face of the grace that we know, in the face of the God that we know, in the face of the Scripture and the truth and all that we know to be true, all that we know to be right, that we can get to a place like this, and camp there for an indefinite period of time. And we can have these things dwelling in the same house at the same time. We can carry on the business of life, uh, utterly blind to the true state of our souls before God. Because David has not dealt with God at this point. When we enter verse 1 of chapter 12, he has not dealt with God. His, his heart is hard and his conscience is calloused and he's going on as if nothing is, has happened. He's spiritually numb. He's, he's pretending. Because if he stopped and he faced these things, something would change. Right? One of the most beautiful things in this whole story is that first four words in chapter 12. Because the Lord sent Nathan. God goes after him. Right? Brothers and sisters, this is fabulous news. Right? This is, this is the gospel in its biggest and broadest strokes. God comes after you. God will come after you. He doesn't leave him in his sin. He comes to save David from himself. Because David can't save himself. He can't dig himself out of this pit. He can't change his own heart. Lord knows that he will stay there and the gravity of his sin and the gravity of his nature and the place where he has gotten to will carry him in that direction indefinitely should not the grace of God intervene in his life. And God comes to him, the hound of heaven, to wake him up. 
Right? God is faithful. Even when we are not faithful and we get to where we should not go, when we are not faithful, God is faithful. So Nathan comes to David. The Lord sends Nathan to David. And, and Nathan comes, and it really, this is a really interesting passage to me. I really, it's really, it reminds me of Solomon and his case history and dealing with things because what happens is that he brings David a legal case. Right? Part of David's job as king is to judge Israel. And so cases are brought for him to decide. You know, and you remember Solomon and the two mothers and one child has died and there's one child left and the wisdom of Solomon and, you know, should you divide the baby and the true mother? You know, the, it's a famous story. Look it up. But the whole idea is that the cases are being brought to the king to hear and to judge on, right? That's part of their role. And so Nathan shows up under the guise of, David, I got a case for you. And he tells him the story of this rich man and a poor man and... This rich man has a visitor and he needs to provide a meal, but he doesn't want to take from his expensive flock. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to use one of his lambs and there's this poor guy, he's got one, one lamb. And he loves this lamb, it's part of the family, like he, like he feeds it off his plate. He you know, gives it you know, a little in his, out of his cup and he you know, holds it in his lap, he raises it, he says it's like a daughter to him. Now that gets a little weird to me, but... You get the idea. It's part of the family. The guy loves this lamb. And it says, okay, the guy loves his, he's got one, he just got what he, and David takes it. The man takes it. That's where this goes, right? The man takes it. And David hears this story and standing on the outside. David is unable to see himself. Right? Our self-ignorance at times is astounding. David doesn't see any parallel. He hears this story. He, doesn't, he cannot see himself. He is unable to grasp his perilous spiritual condition. And David is appalled by this guy. David is appalled by him. He's sickened by him. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. Who would do such a thing? He is, his just anger is kindled as a judge. Right, as king, this is his job and his justice, at the sense of the injustice of the, what this man has done, rises up in him and he's angry and it's spontaneously he says, death. That guy's got to die. He, in fourfold, he's got, to, he's got to make restitution. But the wages of this man's sin, in David's opinion, is death. doesn't realize he's judging himself he's the man in the block and Nathan this extremely famous statement it comes to each and every one of us you're the man right you are the one you did it you know our nature it's interesting because we always want to look at these guys. We do the same thing David does. We look at these guys and think, how, how could he do that? You know, how could he be standing in that position? Or how could he judge that? But the truth is, our nature is just like David's. We look at the people around us, and we're very quick to see everybody else's sin. And I'm very quick to judge, you know, you have the conversation, so-and-so, and so-and-so, this. We're so quick to see everybody else's sin, and we're so quick to judge them, too, what they, you know, what they deserve. You know, that kind of thing where, where David sits when all the while... 
You just take the beam out of your own eye before you go after somebody else. Because there is a beam in, in, in our own eyes. We can be so blind to our own sin. And Nathan springs the trap on him and he says, you are the man. And there is this shocking, powerful moment of self-revelation. You can just imagine, you know, you can hear a pin drop. As he says, you are the man. And David registers me. Me. I am the man. He sees himself. He comes face to face with what he has done. He comes face to face with his sin. And he is broken by what he sees. Because he sees himself. The Bible tells us elsewhere, and, he, and, and in this passage, don't miss God's kindness in this. Right? His word tells us it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It was God's kindness that sent Nathan to David. It is God's kindness this, to provide this shocking moment of self-revelation. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Because repentance is the pathway to life. It's the pathway to restoration. It's the pathway to joy. It's the pathway to relationship with God and to walk before Him with a clean conscience. In 7 to 12, I didn't read it and I don't want to spend time. I, you know, I always have there's so much to cram in. In verses 7 to 12, Nathan gives a little speech. After he says, you are the man, then he walks through and says, there are a lot of consequences to what you've done. You know, and so I, I don't want us to, and the Bible doesn't want us to think that, that mercy comes without a price or, or that there aren't necessarily consequences to what we have done. Even when there is mercy, even when God's kindness is leading us to repentance, there are consequences. And David, or Nathan walks David through some of these things. He says, your reign is going to be a difficult one. You know, it's going to be marred by strife, you know, strife in your family and inside the kingdom. And strife, and you're going to be, your hands are going to be at war until, until the end. And the very last thing he says to him, I think in verse 14 is, and by the way, the child that was conceived of this is not going to make it. So there are all these consequences that come. And this is just true. You, you can think of a thousand different things. You drink and you drive. And sometimes God can forgive us for what happens or what goes there. But if you've had an accident and caused problems or hurt yourself or hurt other people, there are consequences that, that, that are true. That doesn't mean we can't find mercy and forgiveness before God. We do, but... There are often consequences. And so David lives with some of the realities that he has created for himself. There's free and there's full forgiveness. And that is equally shocking in this passage, right? If you look at verse 13, it's almost shocking. He gives his little speech. He says, you are the man. There are some consequences to your sin, David. You need to understand what those consequences are. Things have changed. It affects and, and shapes your life and your experience, and you need to understand that. But then in verse 13, within probably, I don't know, two or three minutes of this revelation, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses it. And Nathan immediately says this amazing statement. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Right, it's shocking. <laughs> the immediacy of, of this declaration. Now, he is a prophet. 
And he, and he knows what's going on in David's heart. And he knows God is, is leading him in, his, in this encounter. And this, so, I mean, he does have some, some, some insight. But he is, when the, when the repentance, this is what we learn from it, though, when repentance is genuine, and that's what Nathan, Nathan understands about David. We're going to look at that in a minute. His repentance is genuine, and he knows God's pronouncement and his word on it. And so he can quickly and easily say, and when it's true for us as well, he has removed your sin from you. You will not die. You will live. You will live. And life is a, abundant, right? Shockingly swift comes the word of grace. David deserved death. Right? He said so himself. He judged his own case. The wages of sin is death. David got it right. But the gift of God right, is life. The, li- the gift of God by his grace is that your sin will be put away and you will live now and forever. The conscience, you know, the guilt of your sin is removed in time and it carries you for an eternity in a right relationship with your God. Now, you know, these are the words that every human being needs to hear, whether they know it or not, whether they've come, you know, into the walls of the church or remain outside. The words that every one of us need to hear is, can you imagine the pronouncement of God over you? Your sin has been put away. Life, life is yours in the judgment of God. Let me pull back one more quick application before I jump into some other things. Is this, I don't want us to miss the fact that God used a man. That God came to David in the person of Nathan. Nathan got in his face. Nathan called him back. You know, Nathan came to tell David things he didn't want to hear, which is why it was really good. He had his, his case, you know, uh, to, to trick David around there because I think if he had come right at him, he may have had a little more trouble to get David to, uh, to see himself and say, I have sinned, have mercy. So David, Nathan came to tell David things he didn't want to hear. He He came to say hard things. He came to say to David, you are the man. But we see that the king, even the king is under spiritual leadership. Even the king in all of his power and all of his glory, sitting in his palace and and reigning over and making his decisions and, and waging his wars and doing the things that he does, the king is under spiritual leadership. And Nathan, God's man, God's prophet, comes and he's able to speak into his life. God uses a brother to say what needed saying when it needed to be said. Right? God uses community. He uses relationships. He uses brothers and sisters who will speak the truth in love and say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. To bring accountability. Right? We need to be connected to people who know us. People who can speak into our lives. This is... Yes, maybe the place where I'd make a plug for the small group sign-ups and the home fellowship group sign-ups. You know, they don't always get as deep as that goes, but, but being connected with people who notice when you're around and when you're not around and who, when you have that moment of clarity and that moment of, of boldness, will share with them what's going on. I love to hear the small groups that are studying marriage and couples being honest about what's going on and, and encouraging one another and counseling one another and praying for one another and, and encouraging healthy and growing marriages and relationships. And We need each other. 
men's groups and the stuff that we've studied over the years, I'd encourage you to consider connecting yourself with other people for the purpose of spiritual growth and accountability. Find it one-on-one, find it in a group of three, join a small group, get together, connect. God uses people. In verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, I read that statement in verse 13 because I've heard people say things like that. And, and the skeptical part of me, that, you know, the, the, that part of me that says that is easy to say. Words are cheap. I've sinned against the Lord. You know, when you give, what would you give to know actually what's going on in David's heart when he says that? Where is he really? You know, what is he thinking? You know, what, what's going on between him and the Lord? Is he really dealing with the Lord at this moment? Or is he just saying what he knows needs to be said to get Nathan out the door, right, off his back? That's one of the marvelous things about the story of David in the Psalms because the Psalms are David's spiritual journey. The Psalms are written, Psalm 51 that I read a minute ago, I didn't read the inscription at the top. You can turn there, it says to the choir master, it's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet, prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is what went on in David's heart when Nathan gave him that little moment of self-revelation. And what he did with it spiritually. What he did with it with God, right? So there's this powerful, I think, and beautiful open door into the heart and soul of a man of God. The whole psalm is a description of this moment and the deep conviction, the work that took place inside of David, spiritually. And what happened was when he saw himself, there was deep conviction. What is conviction? Let's give you a couple of things. One, it's there under your second point in your bulletin if you haven't gotten there yet. John 16, 8. Jesus says this, that he, that is the Holy Spirit, The person of the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What does it mean? He will convict the world of these things. He will, and I think it just simply means this, that conviction is that gracious work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see things as God sees them. Right? That will bring conviction. The gracious work when he brings conviction to the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, which is exactly what took place in David's heart in those moments. The just judgment of God on the sin that he had his eyes open to. and To see things as God sees them. To see ourselves. To see what we are. To see what we've done. To see what we've deserved. You know, it's I was reading of a story of a dirty child who'd been playing outside for the day and he'd been in the dirt and in the mud and the mom calls him in to to take the family to dinner you know everybody we're going to go to dinner and he calls him in and takes him in the bathroom and starts to try to clean him up and gets a wet rag have you ever cleaned a wet child we used to we used to call it the acid rag even though you know it was just water and soap but as soon as you touched it to them it was like they would just recoil as if it's like, what, what? You know, you rinse it out, it's just water, you know. But they would recoil. The mother's trying to clean the child, and the cow's like, no, you know, just he doesn't want to be clean, doesn't think he needs it. And so the mother turns him around and faces him into the mirror. 
and he relaxes and he stops resisting and, and, and lets his mother clean him up. He's going out and he, and he sees it now, right? He gets it now. No excuses for David, no hemming and hawing, no justifying himself. Right? He makes no excuses. He doesn't try to say anything to Nathan except sin against my God. He truly understands his need, and we see it running through Psalm 51, right in verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Oh, I feel it. I know it. I can't get away from it, right? Verse 4, against you only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Right? I know that every sin, and we do hurt people, and we do break things by our sin, but every sin, for whatever damage it does to another person, we need to understand first and foremost, it, it, it does something, but it, it has to do with God. Sin is a theological concept that has to do with me and God. And in, in, in mistreating my wife, I dishonor and disobey God, right? Whenever I do those things, the God who said, be faithful, be kind, be, be those things, when I sin and do that, I've not only hurt other people, which is why he tells us to be the things that he calls us to be, because they're right and good, but we offend him, and he, David has a good, strong sense of this, I know my sin, it's ever before me. I know that it's against you that I've sinned, God. And then in, at the end of that verse, it says, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Your judgment is just and right. The judgment he pronounced on the case was the right and the just judgment. And it's God's judgment. So in verse 5, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. He says, I'm not, I didn't just do something wrong. He says, I'm sinful to the core. I've got a glimpse at my own heart. I got a glimpse at the depths of my heart and where it can go. And it scared the tar out of him. Right? It scared him to death. I was conceived. I see myself. I've not just committed sin. I'm born in it. My friends, the foundation of his mercy as he gets this glimpse is there in verse 1. It has to start in verse 1, doesn't it? This is where the, the whole process of restoration starts. No one will come to God and say the things that David is saying unless verse 1 is in his heart and in his mind. Right? David comes and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. There's no excuses here. There's no hemming and hawing. There's no mitigating circumstances. There's no, well, it was like this or it was like this. Or David doesn't come and say, well, it wasn't that bad. Or, well, I've done all these good things. I only did that one bad thing. Or he doesn't come and present any kind of case at all. No defense. He provides no defense. He simply says, mercy. Have mercy, O oh God. And, and have mercy according to one thing, your steadfast love. Right? Your covenant love, your own character, your own nature, who you are in having loved me with an everlasting love. Undeserving, un, undeserved, unearned, steadfast, abundant love and mercy. On this account, God blot out my trans. If God blots out transgressions, it's going to be on that count and that count alone. If you come into God's presence and you want mercy, you better make one plea, right? You ought to have one argument. Your steadfast love promised to me. 
in your covenant, the promises of grace that ultimately come to fruition as we see here in a moment in the life and the death of Jesus. So verse 7, what is the mercy that David wants? He says, purge me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be white. Right? Hide your face, verse 9, from my sins and blot out my iniquities. What do I want from you? I want forgiveness. I want to be separated from my sin and the consequences of my sin. I want to be right. I want to be free. I want my conscience to be free. What does forgiveness feel like? Verse 8, he says, let, let me hear joy. When I stand in your presence, God, right now all I can see is my sin. All I can think about is judgment. But let me hear joy. Let me hear gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David wanted something even more than he wanted forgiveness, or just as much as he wanted forgiveness. And I think one to nine is one half of this picture, because David didn't just want forgiveness, he wanted to be a new man. He wanted to go back and be that man after God's own heart. He wanted to go back and to be in that place where he started before all this went sideways. Forgiveness is a marvelous thing. But it's a limited thing because it looks backward, right? Forgiveness is, looks backward it, to forget what is behind. But the other side of that is to be able to press on toward what is ahead. Forgiveness cuts the tie with the past. But David wants a revived heart because that's about the future. He wants a revived heart because that looks ahead of who I will be going forward and how I will walk with you and the kind of relationship that I will have with you as we press ahead. Revived heart is described in verses 10 to 12. I believe this is the heart of a genuine believer. If, if there is someone who genuinely, and this is what Nathan has insight into, into David's word, I have sinned against my God. Nathan knows Psalm 51 is going on in David's heart. By God's insight, God gives him the word of forgiveness. And I believe that if you're experiencing verses 1 to 9, wash me, forgive me, blot out my offenses, and give me joy and res- then you're also going to live in verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. That's what we need is a willing spirit. I want to want to be right. I want to want to be pure. I want to want to serve Him and to follow Him and to be obedient. I want to want that. Create in me a willing heart, a new heart, a right heart. Freedom is not only freedom from the guilt of our sin. Freedom is the renewed heart. Freedom is re-consecration in the service of God. Freedom is not only turning away, but turning toward turning away from our sin, seeing it for what it really is, hating it, and turning in that new direction, turning toward. Create in me the heart that will go this way. Renew in me, restore in me the spirit that wants to go this way. Repentance, forgiveness is about getting the heart back where it should be. And that's the whole thing. And sometimes we miss this. 
David put his sin behind him, but he went on as if nothing had ever happened. But Psalm 51, after David, Nathan comes into his life and shocks him into wakefulness, is that David wants to get back to where he once was. David wants to get where he should be. The heart that cries forgive also cries create and renew and fill and change and restore and uphold. In all of this, David understands grace. It sometimes amazes me reading the Old Testament and and looking at these encounters and reading things like Psalm 51 and, and being a little bit surprised at how much these Old Testament guys understood grace. David gets it. Have mercy on me. Jesus tells the parable of this, the publican and the sinner and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people who are struggling with this and that and who don't do this and that. And there's a the guy next to him who simply said, the sinner, he simply said, have mercy on me, O God. And Jesus says, which one of them went away justified? Which one do you think went away justified? It was the one who just said, have mercy on me, O God. Right? That's Jesus' point, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ. And David gets it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David gets grace. He does not understand its cost. And he does not fully understand its source. But he understands it is freely given cleansing of David's soul and the purchase of his freedom and his joy came at the price of the cross. He doesn't know that. But he understands grace and he understands it must be freely given. But he comes at a price. Jesus poured the bore in his own body the price and the penalty for David's failure. Jesus bore in his own body on the cross the price of David's sin. He bore in his, the penalty before God for David so that Nathan could say to him, your sin has been put away and you will live. Jesus invites us to the same cross. He says, come to me all who are weary laden and weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. Right? Jesus, when he says, I will give you rest, he's not talking to people who put in long hours at the office and work weekends. And he's not, he's not talking at that level at all. When Jesus says, I will give you rest for your souls, he's talking to spiritual strugglers. Right? He's talking to you and I as we struggle with our sin. That we are gritty human beings like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Peter who betray our, our Lord, who deny Him in so many ways, who stumble and fall. When Jesus says, come to me, if you're weary and heavy laden, if you are tired of wrestling with your sin and its consequences, if for all of your struggling you know you're failing and you need saving, come to me. I will give you rest. Come to the cross where the price of your failure has been paid, where pardon is freely offered. If you're here this morning and you are weary, if you're here this morning and you are are heavily laden, if you are burdened, and I think the Scripture is inviting you, look on David and do not despair. Right? Look on David and do not despair. Renew your hope. 
Jesus invites us to come to him. <laughs> Verse 8. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And then he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Blot out my transgressions. Set my guilt behind me. Let me feel your pleasure. Jesus has come to me. There is no sin beyond his mercy. There is no place that you can get to where he can't come after you, where he doesn't come for you. He comes for you this morning. As Nathan came to David and said, you are the man. There are many ways. There are some of you this morning that God is coming to you now and saying, you are the man. And you need to go live in Psalm 51. You need to camp out in Psalm 51. and Pursue that clean, restored, renewed life with God. No matter what you've done, no matter how often or how bad. Jesus has come to me. There is rest for your souls. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for David. And we thank you for your grace that includes the record of his whole life. We thank you that we see in David his, his strength and his love for you, but also his weakness and his moral failure. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. We are so quick to judge others, and we are so slow to see ourselves in the light of your glory. Father, we do fall short, and we are desperately in need of the grace that David sought at your hand day by day. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would lead us through Psalm 51, that we would passionately cry and passionately desire that you would create in us a clean heart, that you would restore in us a right spirit, that you would bring us back to yourself and let us feel your pleasure, that we might walk with you, we might serve you and be like Christ. This is our deep desire, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.